Well, let's have a word of prayer as we begin, and then we'll be looking at 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, let's pray together. Gracious Lord in heaven, we do thank you for your watch, care, and protection over us in the past week. We always want to be careful, Lord, to recognize your hand of goodness upon us every day. And some days it's more obvious than others, and some days it doesn't seem like it at all, and yet we know you're consistent, you're faithful, you're true, you don't change, and uh, we just need to better appreciate what you're doing in our lives. We do thank you for bringing us to the Lord's Day. We thank you for the prospect of the Lord's Day, what, what it promises to us in, in, uh, in terms of the rest, uh, the blessing, the fellowship with believers, all the different things that are a part of it. And uh, we thank you, Lord, for those that have worked behind the scenes and some more obvious perhaps than others to, to have uh, things ready for us today. I pray you'll bless in the worship services today and in all the ABF classes at whatever age level. Uh, for the Sunday school classes, for the younger ones, and the ABF classes here now for, for um, the adults. Just pray, Lord, that you would uh, watch over us. I pray that you would uh, guide our hearts as we listen this morning. Lord, because there are many things that vie for our attention, and uh, each of us has brought concerns, sometimes worries and problems, uh, as a part of us here today, burdens. But uh, we know that we really can't address those now so much. You can. So it's important that we open our hearts to your truth and your word rather than try to, to fester on those things and worry about them ourselves. We just pray now that you would allow the Spirit of God to minister to every heart. And I pray for the speaker here today, Lord, that you just would work and give freedom and give a fresh sense of your presence and the ability to say things in a practical, helpful way for people in the class here today. In Jesus' holy name I pray, amen. All right, well, we are going to take a break from all the rush that we've had for the last couple of weeks, trying to make up some extra ground in advance. And I got to looking at this this week, and to be honest with you, we have to do it one more time to get done. And it throws me off a little because it's too much to do, but yet um, the other side of the coin is you get to the end and say, well, he didn't finish. <laughs> so I don't want that either. Uh, so, but we are going to take a break from it. I really gave some thought to doing the last of 1 Peter chapter 4 today, which would take us over two sections, but I turned away from that. What I think I'm going to plan is to do the first two parts of, of uh, chapter 5 and combine two lessons there, or have two lessons for you there. They're more brief. Too much ground, too much going on in chapter 4, I think, to do that. But let me direct your attention today to verse number seven. I, I hope everybody found a, a paper available um, when you came in today. And you should have one that says lesson 10 if I did things right. And uh, we're in 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one, whoever speaks, you, you need to sort of supply a verb here or else notice the semicolon and how they've, they've, uh, they've uh, done this here. So whoever speaks, or the, the comma there, let him speak, or we could say as it's rendered here, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
Well, I'll tell you something, folks. We've been looking at this theme of suffering in 1 Peter, and we've made a, a statement out of the theme so that we come away with a message, and that is that Christ is sufficient in suffering. You might have noticed that in the earlier part of the book, the suffering, is, the suffering theme is less pronounced. You, certainly when you read the whole, and then you look at what comes in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, um, you see it particularly once you get down to that momentous verse in chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And then our key verse for this section that we're working in, verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. However, I think it's fair enough to say, so, so suffering is evident in these first two chapters, but I think it's fair enough to say that it really bursts out into our attention once you get into chapter 3, and particularly that, again, another very momentous verse, verse number 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So what we've been doing is we've been developing this idea of Christ's sufficiency in suffering, noticing that he first of all sustains us with his salvation, and then this longer section that we're in right now that he guides us by his example. And we're seeing, what we're seeing here is eight examples or eight areas of application. Christ's example in what areas? And we've looked at a number of them to this point. This morning we come to the seventh of those, and what we're going to do is look at this in terms of stewardship. Now, I don't know if you noticed or not, but the word steward is used here, but it doesn't occur till a little bit later in the section. So let's notice again verse 10 so that we're honed in on why I'm approaching it this way. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. So there it is right there. So we're going to talk about stewardship today because even though the term occurs a little bit later in the, in the section of verses, Nevertheless, I think it fits very well, if you're looking for a theme here, it fits very well to go ahead and see this as, as a, a affecting the whole. You can make a presentation of all that's here under the broad banner of stewardship. Now, I suspect we have a number of people who, over the years of your Christian experience, have been in different churches. You haven't necessarily been here all your life. And uh, so I don't know if some of you can remember or had in your past churches that that uh, did stewardship emphases, or some might have even called them campaigns, um, or they might have called them stewardship month. I know uh, in our church for a lot of years, not all the years, but many years, we had what we called stewardship emphasis. I liked calling it stewardship emphasis. And we would talk about some of these different truths, and why I bring that up is because uh, it, 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 it's a relatively standard, you might pick up on this, but it's a relatively standard presentation when you bring up the subject of stewardship to talk about the stewardship of time, talent, and treasure. And you can also add to that if you like T's, if you like alliteration, you can also add another one sometimes if you want to talk about testimony. But time, talent, and treasure, you hear people rattle that off all the time, all the time, all the time. So. In following that this morning, I, I know I run the risk of, of someone maybe saying, yeah, I've heard that before. Don't, please don't tune me out because I don't think you may have heard it as, it as we develop it here. You may have heard that outline before. But there's a little disclaimer I need to make, and that is this. I would never use this presentation if I didn't think it fit. 
In other words, I wouldn't take something that just sounded good and that's common to hear and impose it on the text if I didn't think it fit. That's, that's a, a violation of my standards of how I would want to handle the scriptures. But that is something that does fit here. And we are looking at how Peter seg- singles out various areas or groups of people to apply the example of Christ to. I haven't had so much emphasis in what you're going to hear me say this morning on bringing to bear the example of Christ, but there's no doubt that it's here. So what we want to do this morning is, I say at the, at the last of the, it would be helpful if I get this uh, clicker out of my pocket, I know. It, uh, ooh. Hmm. Well, maybe that'll fix over time. But anyway, uh, if we get down to the last point of the introduction, I want you to notice this last sentence that I, that I have here. It fits here, unfolding along the lines of motivation and response. So as you watch what goes on this morning and listen to what goes on, what we're looking for Peter to do is give us a response and give us a motivation. I think that's evident here. Sometimes we'll see response first, then motivation. Sometimes we'll see motivation first, then response as we look at each of these three areas of time and treasure and talent. So let's consider the subject of time first. Where do we see time in verse number seven? Well, it says at the very first phrase, the end of all things is at hand. And I think at once you see a reference to time, and at the same point you also see the motivation that's given. The end of all things has drawn near. Kind of a an expression that's used a number of times in Scripture. And let's see if I have the verses for you here. Yeah, I do. Um, So we bump into this actually in the New Testament really soon. Because the moment John the Baptist springs on the scene, in Matthew 3, 2, when he's preaching, he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. More literally, the very same verb form that we have, very same verb form that we have right here in 1 Peter 4, 7. The kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Well, that's a motivation, and it's designed to elicit a response. Can you tell me what the response is from the verse? What are we supposed to do in view of the fact that the kingdom of heaven is drawn near? Repent. All right, then a chapter later, when Jesus uh, comes on the scene, he says the same thing. Verse 17 of chapter 4. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent for the kingdom of heaven again, is at hand or has drawn near. Same exact verb form that you have here in 1 Peter 4, 7. Now, it isn't confined there. Um, Coming over to James chapter 5, verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So, John the Baptist and Jesus talk about the kingdom of heaven is drawn near. James talks about the, the fact that the coming of the Lord has drawn near. That's an interesting concept. We'll ask ourselves the question in a moment, in what sense has the kingdom of heaven drawn near to those listeners or to us, thinking about what James says, in what sense has the coming of the Lord drawn near? Because it is a motivation, because we're never given prophecy. And, and I say this because it's been a recurring theme with me throughout my entire ministry especially really in any area of doctrine, but especially when you come to the subject of prophecy. You have so many people that are interested in prophecy, but they're just interested because they're curious. They're just interested because they want to know what's next. I like the story about the guy that said, that was asked, if you could have any one thing 
what would you ask for? He said, a copy of the Wall Street Journal dated one year from today. Now you think about that for a few <laughs> moments. So it, it, these things have implications for us, right? What has drawn near? And the Bible gives us the coming of Christ. It's meant to impact our lives. It's meant to give us direction. It's meant to be a motivation and, a and a, for a desired response. But I'll tell you, to me, when I think about time, even though I think what we've shown thus far is quite sufficient to show the, the idea of time uh, and a connection to time, boy, you really see this. I mean, this just becomes very direct. You don't have the same verb form here, but you sure have the same thought. You sure have the same desired response when Paul, in Romans 13, 11, says, Behold, uh, oh, sorry, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come, so that's the same idea. The hour has come for you to, I didn't check to see if that's the same verb form, I'll have to look at that later, but, be, but besides this, you know the time, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. All right, so what's the implication of this? What is the implication of saying that the coming of the Lord has drawn near? Because he hasn't come yet. That is the second coming, right? We didn't miss that, did we? Right, okay, just checking. So what is that? Well, because what this is saying to us is that it's impending, but it's not defined. In other words, we're not given a day. In fact, we're warned away from that. We're warned away consistently from date setting in the New Testament, right? And uh, I always think of the, the perfect example. I got a copy in the mail, the guy that wrote the book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Occur in 1988. Did anybody see that book? I'm just curious. I, I, seriously, I'm not making that up. 88 reasons why the, was that Edgar Wiesenop? I, I, you might not remember it, I don't either, but that might be the author's name there. But in any case, that uh, he wrote that book. Well, it didn't happen, of course, in 1988. So he turned around and added one and said 89 reasons. I don't know if he wrote a book, but 89 reasons why the rapture will occur in 1989. Well, you sell a lot of copies with a book like that, right? Which is to make merchandise, in my opinion, of the scriptures. Uh, but the Bible consistently warns us off that kind of thing. Then in the 2000s, we had another person come along that I think you'll well remember, Harold Camping. And all the billboards and all the messages, and we were told that day when the rapture was going to happen. And... Hmm, trying to remember now. Is that 2011? I, I don't remember, but I do remember what my response to it was. The week before the date was to occur on Sunday morning in our church, I preached on why the rapture will not occur. And I named that date. Now, I noticed that after that date, a number of my brothers that I saw on Sermon Audio and other places preached sermons about why. And I, I looked at it and I thought, chicken. They waited until they were sure. I was pretty sure ahead of time it wasn't, so we talked about that. So, but the Bible warns us off of that kind of thing, so it's impending, but not defined. So you have, in the sense, this undefined motivation because what we know, and the term that we use when you, when you study prophecy and hear preaching on this, the term that's used is to say the coming of Christ is imminent. That means it could happen at any time. So it's impending but not defined because it might happen today. And that'd be good, 
but it might not. And that's meant to sort of, in a positive sense, this maybe sounds like a negative expression, but in a positive sense, that's meant to hang over us, <laughs> you know? It's meant to cause us to live a certain way. So that's the motivation that's given here. What about the response? Well, he gives two things. He says, to be self-controlled, as it's translated here in ESV. Notice verse 7 again, therefore. So remember, whenever you see the therefore, you ask yourself what the therefore is there for. And because now he's telling us, here's the, here's the desired response from this motivation. And the first thing that we're told is be self-controlled. And uh, the idea behind this is actually sound-minded and has, the, has the, the more literal sense of think correctly. There's a mouthful in, in explaining it that way because, you know, a lot of people just don't think correctly. And so we're told to think correctly about our time knowing that the coming of the Lord has drawn near or particularly when this is, uh, we're excited to do this. In other words, an event comes into our lives that causes us to realize just how important it really is to be serious about our Christianity and live for the Lord and suffering has a way of doing that as we pointed out in verses 1 through 6. All right, so to be self-controlled or to have an approach to time that is not careless, it's not frivolous, it's not lackadaisical. And we all need to be reminded about this from time to time, that we're, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, to redeem the time, knowing that the days are evil. The second thing he mentions is to be sober-minded. And you could translate this watch, as does the King James, but it is nafo in Greek, which means to be free from intoxicants, not to be drunk. But alcohol is not the only intoxicant, right? Because you can, you can talk literally about an intoxicant like alcohol, or you can use the expression figuratively and say, you know, there are a lot of things in this world that have a way of putting us under their influence. Riches can do that. Power can do that. Popularity can do that. There's a lot of things in this world that can reach out and grab you, and then you find yourself under the influence of those things more than you're under the influence of spiritual truth and of the Lord, and that's what we don't want. Uh, we want to get away from that. So Peter's exhortation is, is uh, someone has asked the question, and I have the verses here for you. Do you think when Peter said this, he was thinking of himself? Because he talks about being sober and watching unto prayer, as the King James says it, or this, if you have this approach, if you have right thinking and you have a sober approach, this will aid you to be more prayerful, is the idea here in the context. Peter found himself in a situation where Jesus told him to do those exact things, and he didn't do it. So here we have the account from Mark's gospel. He came and found them sleeping. That's Jesus. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is flesh willing, but the flesh is weak. What did he say? Watch and pray. Be sober and pray. Watch and pray. And then when Peter, this gets a little more explicit, if you think Peter might have been thinking of himself and wincing a little bit, when he wrote this, and boy, I learned this by a hard example. Be sober-minded, he says. Same thing, be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, Lord willing, will get there. So these are all things that, that have an implication for time. 
and what the motivation and the response. Let's look at treasure. And in this case, I want to spend a little more time here, so I'm, 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 you, more could be said about any of these, obviously. But I, I want to think about the response and, and organize it for you this way and use the reverse order before we look at the motivation. What sort of response are we looking for? Thinking about even just a, a context in Christian community or our church life that is relatively trouble-free. I mean, I've, over the years, I've sort of taught myself, well, you have a day that's trouble-free, enjoy it. Because tomorrow probably won't be, or the next day won't be. It's, it's always around the corner, and don't go looking for it. If you've got a, if you've got a day when the wind is, is at your back and the seas, yeah, following seas and the wind is balmy, hey, enjoy it. God gave that one. Every day may not be that way, but what is he looking for here, especially in a context where maybe it's not that way? Maybe you don't have fair winds and following seas. Maybe you've got a storm raging. Well, they did in the first century, right? Because they were about to enter a period of suffering with the Neronian persecutions, but beyond that, they had already had persecution in the early church, and so this thing of hospitality, which is literally the idea of loving strangers, you see at verse 9, show hospitality. How many times have you heard a sermon on hospitality? Probably few. And if, if you tend to do expository preaching, it may just come up as you hit it in a verse like this, so... But a lot needs to be said about this, and a lot can be said about this, and you don't recognize it so much from verse 4 of chapter 4, although I pointed it out at that time, when he says this, with respect to this, they are surprised. They, they think you're strangers. They, they think you're weird. They think you're an outsider. That's what this is, literally, is loving strangers. How easy is that to do? Not necessarily. In what context might you need to do this? In what context, as I say here, it was critical in the early church, both in the light of persecution and in the light of evangelism. Think about those two concepts for a few moments. Things aren't necessarily limited to that, but trying to get a little bit of an idea of how this all was so important in a first century church context, uh, Acts 2.44. So they had problems there right away almost from the Jews as they began to preach in the name of Jesus. And it says, all who believed were together and had all things in common. Ask yourself the question, what would motivate? So now we're thinking about motivation. That's a response, but what about, what would motivate us to be willing to share what we have with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Certainly a context like that but what about the motivation? Well, we're going to get there. Um, it gets really explicit in the book of Hebrews. He says, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted. So persecution is pretty, really obvious here. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, loss of goods, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And he uses that type of a context in chapter 13 to give us a familiar exhortation about hospitality and strangers. Do not 
neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. I have to say, if I've done that, it's been unaware. But it says, remember those who are in prison as, those, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. So there's one context, persecution. That's kind of what we've got going on in First Peter. But you also have another one, evangelism. So in the first century, when these people traveled to, to present and, and preach the gospel, these, well, I guess we, we would today maybe think of this as like a traveling evangelist. But in the first century, this went on. So if you were, if you were doing that for Christ and you were going to places that you hadn't been to before and to present the gospel, what would you do? Just call ahead and make mo reservations at Motel 6? Well, I mean, they had inns, but it's nothing like today. You would, especially if you didn't have much money, you would really be dependent on Christian brothers or sisters who, for the sake of Christ, for the love of the brethren, and for the love of the gospel, were willing to open their home to you or otherwise facilitate your journey by the things that you needed. Last week in the text, uh, in the morning sermon, what Andrew was dealing with, the people there on the island, when they got ready to leave, they gave them such things as they had need of. That's the same type of idea. And in 3 John, you really see John talking about this. Beloved, it is, a faith, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey. That's this idea of hospitality in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I really like that because it encourages me. All can't go, but all can be fellow workers for the truth. So you have a share. Um, you know, I, I think of my daughter. I mean, she's in Honduras. I, I'm not there, but I can have a share in that. And many, many other supporting churches and people who pray and other things have a share in that too. And it's always important to remember um, we're fellow workers, laborers together with God. But, so here's the question then. Why is it that in 2022, and let's be personal, in a local church like ours where we don't really have any major disturbance, we don't do much of this? I mean, we, it's not like we don't do any. But why is, why is hospitality sort of like thank you notes or whatever? Why has that sort of become passe and fallen on bad times? And there are explanations for it. I, for one is it requires sacrifice and work. And I think I have this verse for you in Romans 12, 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. We're told in a different context. So it does require some sacrifice and some work to do this, and we find ourselves in a context now where oftentimes husband and wife are both working, so when do you do this? It's work. And if you work through the week, Monday through Friday, you have precious little time, so you tend to regard Saturday as your downtime because you know you're going to have a full day on Sunday, and you're not necessarily thinking of spending Saturday in preparation for dinner company on Sunday 
or whatever, however you might do something like this. So there are a lot of reasons that we can offer why this is sort of, um, you know, in our current context has become less of a practice of the church. What motivates us in Peter's mind to do this, particularly um, strangers? I mean, it's, it's one thing, and the Bible talks about this, you know, you have over people that you chum with all the time, that's fun. But if you have strangers, that's more work, right? And so he says love, which is the preeminent trademark of believers, John 13, 35, I think we all know that verse about by this shall all men know that you're my disciples and you have love one for another. And one of the ways that love works in our lives is by noticing what it says in, uh, in, the, in, in the, where he says at the beginning here in verse number eight, above all, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. In other words, there needs to be an intensity to this love since love covers a multitude of sins, and you notice that phrase at the end, love covers a multitude of sins, and then you notice a phrase uh, in the end of verse 9, right after it says, show hospitality, then it says, to one another without grumbling or grudging. So, what does he tell us about love? He tells us that it... it covers a multitude of sins or shortcomings. So you say, well, you know, some people are prickly. They are. It's easier, to, if you're going to do something, to have over the ones that aren't prickly or the ones that you relate to more readily. But since we all have our shortcomings, it is easy at times to be grudging, and especially when there are other demands on our time, what this is telling us, and we have a verse on this actually. Um, let's see here. Yeah, Proverbs 10, 12. <clears throat> Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. And so then we're not to be grudging, and that gets into the idea of giving, which gets, gets into the idea of what you do when you show hospitality, you are giving. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, an unbegrudging giver. One who's, it's actually the English hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. But it's not quite what you're thinking because you, this word in the original language traces right back to the idea of propitiation. Hilasterion and hilasmos and those words refer to this idea in the New Testament. So it, it's kind of the idea of being motivated by God's love, thinking about what he's done for us. We have a motivation to do this um, for other people. I saw a story some years back, probably about, I'm thinking, at least six now. It was actually a devotional that Joe Stoll wrote. And, uh, you know, he, he I, we won't get into Joe Stoll, but Typically, when he writes devotionals, they're of a, a little higher caliber than <laughs> some that you encounter in the same periodical where this appeared. But the name of the devotional, or the title of the devotional, was Turn Off the Scoreboard. And the story, the little story that introduced the devotional was about a high school football coach in a town, a neighboring town. And so they'd practice all week, then they'd play the game Friday or Saturday or whatever. And if the team, if his team lost the football game, 
he would leave the scoreboard on all week with the losing score. And that was supposed to be a motivation to the team in the game that would be upcoming in the next week not to repeat that performance and to win. And the man who was, had, had been called upon at, at, his, uh, uh, at his son's wedding reception to give some remarks to the new bride and groom was actually the one telling the story. And he said, <clears throat> this was his point, he said, you know, that might be a strategy that works in football, but it's not a strategy that works in marriage. And so he said, when the problems happen, learn how to turn off the scoreboard. That's what love helps us do, is to turn off the scoreboard. Don't leave the losing tallies up there all the time. Don't keep bringing up. Don't keep focusing on those things, because if you keep focusing on those things, there's some people you never will reach out to. There's some people you never will spend any time with. You'll just avoid them. But we all have, and those same people probably look at us and think that we're weird, too or that we have some shortcomings, and we all do. So this is what we're being told to do here. I, I was thinking of something else this week I, as an illustration of this, and I don't know why this particular idea popped into my head, but I guess it was because I was studying the original words and looking at what they meant, and just uh, so often that triggers the help that I need to explain something or an idea that, that I, I can use to explain something. But, this whole idea behind covers is, it covers over. So what I have in the notes there is, it doesn't mean that love is blind to shortcomings. It just helps you overlook them. And I thought about, well, what, what's customary to do? I mean, if, if, uh, if you have, I mean, if, if you've ever been in a, maybe it's not always done immediately uh, in a hospital type context, but if someone dies, what's customary to do? Well, you usually pull the sheet up and cover them. Or if, if you're at some sort of a, a scene where there's a, you know, it's customary to cover the body just because, well, there's a lot of reasons. First of all, you think about dignity of the person wherever we can have that. But you also think about the fact that it's a distraction. Well, that's what our shortcomings are. They're a distraction. So it's like we need to pull the sheet up over them. Uh, you know that there's a dead body under the sheet. So it's not like you don't know that those problems are there, but love enables us to pull the sheet up. And that's, that's what he's talking about here. Okay, we're doing decently, but every time I say that, then I hit something and don't comply, so we'll keep moving. Um, the last thing we want to talk about is talent. This does become rather interesting. Um, how does that fit? How do you see talent coming into this? Because he says, and I know we can, we can talk about distinctions between talents and spiritual gifts. That's, that's fine. I understand all that. But under the broad heading, notice what it says. As each has received a gift. All right, so we're, we're back to the motivation as each has received a gift. And you notice that I put in brackets the word grace. The reason that I did that is because this is not just your, this is not the common word that you would use for a gift. Nothing wrong with that word, nothing wrong with a gift. This is the word you'd, you'd use in the context of talking about spiritual gifts. It's the word charisma. And if you listen to that, 
then you, you, would, you wouldn't be too far away from figuring out, okay, what do we take from that? And what word are we all familiar with? Well, we have in English charisma. But in this context, we're more prone to be thinking about charismatics. And that, that's where this comes from. It's referring to a grace gift because the reason you highlight grace when you talk about this is because charis in Greek is grace. So God has given us a gift, it says. In fact, it says, as each has received, past tense, a gift. And we can quibble over whether that's at birth or whether that's when we're saved, but Peter, in looking at these believers, this is the point, so we want to get past the quibbling and not worry about that. The point that he brings out is, is that when he thinks about his Christian audience and he thinks about his readers, he says, every single one of you has a gift given by God. And he doesn't necessarily talk about whether you just have one, but he does say you have one. If you read that phrase in verse number 10, I, I just have a question that I want to ask. Verse 10, as each has received a gift. Anybody in here exempt from that? Says each, right? So no, none of us is exempt. Each of us has a gift, and some of us may have multiple gifts. And so let's go back, and this is, this is the place in 1 Peter. This is one of about four places in the New Testament that spiritual gifts are discussed. And you, know, you have Romans 12, you have 1 Corinthians 12, you have Ephesians 4, and you have 1 Peter 4. All right, so let's go back to 1 Corinthians 12 and just catch a couple things. So what is Paul's teaching on this? Now, there are varieties of gifts, and Paul lists some. Don't know that the lists are complete, but he lists some. But he says the same Spirit, and then in verse 7 he says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit, what? For the common good. In other words, you're given this, God explicitly says in his word, just as Peter is saying here, that each of us has a gift, but there's a distinct reason why we've been given the gift, and that is that we're supposed to not sit on it. We're supposed to use it for the common good. In other words, here in our assembly, if each of us has a gift, we're supposed to use it for the good of our brothers and sisters here, as well as perhaps even in a broader context, but certainly here. All right. Um, you have this verse that... Uh, I incorrectly was, I was reminding Frank earlier in the week, well, this past week on Wednesday, and I guess it was about this verse, and told him it was in Mark, but it's in Matthew. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils freely, ye have received, freely give. So we didn't come by this naturally, God gave it to us, right? So he gave it to us for a reason, and that's our motivation. Our response, as we continue reading here, in verse 11, what's the response to the fact that God has graciously given to us each a gift? Well, he tells us in the latter part of verse 10 that we're to respond to this as if we were stewards and servants. Notice what it says, use it to serve 
and serve as the word deacon. Okay? It's the word that we have deacon from. It's the word you have in Acts 6 and occurs all over the place in the New Testament. Mark 10.45, which is my favorite verse in Mark. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered. It's often translated minister in the King James Version. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus said, Behold, I am among you as one that serves. Diakoneo, to serve, to be a deacon. And so we're to regard ourselves as servants, even if it means waiting on tables. That's what the first deacons did in Acts 6, right? They waited on tables. And then he brings this concept of stewardship to bear. So we know what that is. It's a household manager. He was delivered like, oh, think of Joseph, okay? Even way, way back in the Old Testament, this concept applies. Think about Joseph or think about Eliezer. He was Abraham's steward. These people really had a lot of, you think about Eliezer going on that trip to find Rebekah. I mean, he had a lot of, Abraham put a lot of trust in him, and he took out of that place with a whole train of camels and whoever, all the, the people that he took with him. This wasn't a small affair. Plus, when you read about when he found Rebekah and all those jewels he broke out for her, and then the jewels he broke out for other people that were there, I mean, he, he had, his master committed his goods into his hand, and that's what a steward does and you have Jesus talking about an unjust steward in Luke 16, but we know the concept. Someone who's a household manager manages the household. So I, I took no end in delighting if I, if I were going to speak on this passage because uh, our church, our polity was just slightly different, it was more, more, more of a standard Baptist polity, I guess you would say. We had deacons and trustees. Here we have deacons and elders. Well, so I took no end in delight in pointing out when I got to this. So there is a sense in which every one of you out there this morning is both a deacon and a trustee. Mm. That's, that's kind of a, an interesting concept for us, isn't it? So what do we do with this? And here's another interesting point. Peter has, does something with this, and see what you think about this. He gives a twofold division of spiritual gifts, suggestive perhaps of the fact that they can all be put in one way or another under these two headings. What do you think about that? Let me tell you what they are, but then you go mull on it, see what you think. See if you think you can line them up all under these two headings. Or if he's just giving two leading examples. But he says here, if anyone speaks, so speaking gifts, that's not just related to people that preach sermons on Sunday morning. That really would be related to anyone who's able to communicate the word of God. And it's, when we do this, it's, we, have to, we have to look at this as a somewhat serious thing because he says you have to realize when you do it that you're, you're ministering or you're speaking as if they were God's oracles because they are. You're not up there to give your message. You're up there to give God's message. Romans 3.2, do I have that verse for us? Um, yeah. Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So if, if we're called upon to speak, and God has so gifted us that we do that, 
He doesn't give us that grace. He doesn't give us that gift so that we can get up there and yammer on and on about what we think. He gets us to get up there and talk about what he thinks. And what he says. Second division, he says, if anyone serves. So you think you could put them all under these two headings? It's an interesting thought. Tons of ways to serve, right? Might not just all be listed in those passages, or at least specifically, maybe more generally, in all those lists that we have in the New Testament of spiritual gifts. But he says, if anyone serves, well, serve with the realization in mind that you do it in God's strength, not yours. And what we've come up with, folks, is two things. God gave us the gift. God supplies the strength, but we're stewards of that to manage it as if we were doing his business. If we speak, we speak his word. If we minister, if we serve, we draw upon the strength that God provides, which I think means that if you're gifted to serve and you're in a serving context, you can count on God to supply you the strength. In fact, when he says here, so... Let me give you another way to think about this that may. It says, who serves by the strength that God supplies. Think of the, think of the concept of an outfitter. I, I don't know, maybe that doesn't touch base with some folks. But if you have done any hunting and actually, the original here is speaking about a choir. So if the man was conducting the choir, he outfitted the choir with whatever they needed. What would they need? Well, I guess you think about our choir, you, know, you need the music, and so whatever you need. And if you're going on the road, see, I, I, this is common for, uh, in, in colleges, or did, is that right? Oh, my soul. That thing was misleading. It's time to quit, isn't it? Okay, well, let me just finish up. You know, I was watching that thing, and it, all of a sudden it said 10 after. I looked at it again. It still said 10 after, and I, I'm doing good here. See, I told you. You have to keep pushing forward. But if you think about Cabela's, um, Cabela's likes to refer to themselves as the world's foremost outfitter. The world's foremost outfitter. What's that mean? That, well, what's the outfitter do? Well, if you're going to Alaska, he's probably going to supply the boat. He's probably going to make the arrangements for the small plane to get you and take you over to where you're going. All this kind of stuff. You get the idea. You're paying for it. But he's expected to come up with those things. So God will come up with what you need if you're going to serve him in whatever context. But he does this for a distinct purpose, and here's where we're going to end. He does it in order that he may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And that mere thought brings Peter to say, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. That seems like a good note to end on, so we will.